if I think about drinking and how I used to drink, the first drink was obviously the the biggest um, gold star on the horizon. That's what I wanted. But like by the twelfth one, I was still trying to chase that same excitement over and over again. I was getting less and less utility as I went. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are hearing this, you have once again tuned the Consequence of Habit podcast, and this is your host, JT. You know, on this podcast, we have in-depth conversations with our guests about the impact that habits have played in their life, both good and bad. And we use these conversations to help us better understand the things that are in our control and the things that aren't. It helps us analyze the things we do on a daily basis and have an honest conversation about whether those things are adding value to our life where they're holding us back. So with that said, let's get it started. All right, that brings us to this week's guest. This week, I sit down with Gavin Young. Gavin is the Senior Partnership and Engagement Manager at The Phoenix. And The Phoenix is a fellow nonprofit. These guys are, are building an active community, providing free uh, fitness classes of all different kinds for anybody who's uh, in recovery for substance misuse disorders or just wants to live a sober life. Now, I've, I've said it here before, we are all in recovery from something. Obviously, the consequences for uh, drugs and alcohol are extreme. But the fact is that we all are using something to numb ourselves, to distract ourselves um, from this, this human experience. So the Phoenix has built this community and they provide free fitness classes in all different types. I mean, it could be CrossFit, it could be rock climbing, running, hiking, walking, uh, they're just building a community of like-minded people that are moving in a positive direction without the use of substances that change your or alter your your your, your mindset. Gavin's got a pretty extraordinary story himself. Just like many of the people on here, uh, he find found his path through dealing with his own demons. Stay tuned. There's going to be some Consequence of Habit and Phoenix joint projects uh, coming down the pike here very soon. So, hey, before we get the show started, as you know, this thing is, we don't run ads. You'll hear me talk about other companies, but these are not ads that that are paying, paying me or anybody a Consequence of Habit. This is all run on donations. Not a single dime goes into my bank account. Uh, or any of the board members here. So if you guys believe in what we're doing, you, you like the mission, you've seen the workshops, you hear the guests that come on, you've seen our ambassador program, do me a favor, head over to consequenceofhabit.org, show us a little love, hit the donate button. We'd appreciate it more than you know. Without further ado, please welcome to the podcast, Gavin Young. Cool. Everybody, today we are joined by Gavin Young. Gavin is the senior partnership and engagement manager at the Phoenix. Uh, some of you are listening to this already going to know what the Phoenix is. Uh, some of you will not, but you're going to learn a ton now. Uh, but we're going to start off, Gavin. I appreciate you spending the time with us. JT, thanks for having me, man. I, I uh, appreciate you reaching out, and um, you know I love what you're doing here in terms of getting the message out about people and organizations that are kind of like-minded and uh, mission-oriented. So I'm, uh, I'm thrilled to be here. Cool. So y- you don't know this, but you you made my day. When I, when I reached out uh, to you and I said, hey, this is who I am. This is our organization. I think there could be some some opportunities here to po- potentially do something together. 
And you you got back to me fairly quick and you said, hey, I've actually heard about your organization a couple of times secondhand. And uh, that single line, uh, just, just, it, I was like, yes, yes. Because, you know, you, you don't know, right? Things are starting to grow and you have no idea if the message is getting out there. So the fact that you'd heard, even heard of us, um, to me personally, was was a big deal. And, and then after uh, our phone conversation, I just, leading up to this, I just foresee like lots of opportunities um, we'll get into what the Phoenix does. People that are listening to this already know what we're doing, and, and I, I don't think it's it's a, a heavy lift to to see where these these two organizations can certainly kind of get together and, and fight the same fight. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I saw the brand on uh, your LinkedIn message, and um, you know, I recognize the organization. The Mid Atlantic, it's you know, yeah, it's a small community. Like people that are operating in this space, like they all kind of like know each other a little bit. So yep. I was, uh, I was more than happy to do it. Cool. Actually, one of our board uh, uh, members, uh, uh, Harry Conane, uh, do you know Harry? Does that name sound familiar? Sure. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I've, t- I've talked to Harry uh, for some work stuff. All right, cool. Yeah, I let him know that yeah. we were jumping on him. But uh, all right, first off, let's, Gavin, let's, let's, before we get into your own personal story, let's have people understand what the Phoenix is and kind of what their mission is and, and how they go about it. Yeah, sure. Um, so our organization started in about 2006, 2007. And it was the idea of our founder, uh, Scott Strode. He's an individual in long-term recovery himself. And he found himself very early on in recovery living out in Colorado. And he got roped in with a group of ice climbers out there and got really into rock climbing and ice climbing. And uh, he tells this story way better than I do. But very early on in his recovery, he found himself summiting a mountain and he felt this intense sense of... Um, pride and self-awareness in terms of what he was doing, something that he never felt in all of his years of using. And it was at that point that he realized this, this feeling is something that could be really useful to individuals in recovery, especially early on in recovery, because um, back then there wasn't a whole lot of different avenues in terms of individuals finding sobriety. So he came up with this idea for the Phoenix, which started off essentially as a, uh, a gym in Boulder that, um, was free for anybody to use as long as they had 48 hours of sobriety. And uh, the early days of it was a lot of rock climbing, boxing, weight training, and trail running. And people really gravitated towards it. Uh, I think I'm always going to butcher the brain chemistry side of uh, why exercise is good for people in recovery. But whatever that uh, dopamine kick is that people get when they're doing something physical or doing something active, especially when they're doing it in a group setting with other people that have the same shared experience, it creates this really unique bonding opportunity and people, people latched onto it and um, it spread really, really quickly. They took uh, they took that same model and they expanded it to Denver, Colorado Springs, Boston and Orange County. And, uh, all of those sites really kind of took off in their own vein. But at the same time, uh, anybody who's been aware of what's going on in the news, especially nowadays, um, the opioid epidemic has really just ballooned. And this model that we had of picking a new city, trying to find space to rent, getting gym equipment, finding people to teach, it's it's not a fast process. So we were kind of getting outpaced by the epidemic and we needed to lean into uh, a new way of expanding to new chapters and new markets. So 
that led us to our current model, which is what we call our volunteer activation model, where we will partner with local gyms, uh, local yoga studios, uh, local community partners, and uh, we will activate volunteer instructors to lead programming at these businesses and help them with outreach to local treatment centers, local 12-step groups. And that concept of volunteer activation as a way of expansion has gotten us to the point now where I think today we're in about 41 or 42 states wow. and uh, also have two pilot sites going, uh, one in Windsor, Canada, and another in London in the UK. So it's really helped us kind of expand this model uh, by leaps and bounds. Yeah, I, th- I think it's it's... I mean, obviously, I think it's fantastic. And even in the mission statement, one of the things that really struck me um, is that you you have a prerequisite of 48 hours of of sobriety. And it says it's it's for people that have uh, suffered from substance uh, misuse disorder, and that can be alcohol, or somebody that's just that chooses to live sober. Um, How, as far as ratio goes, like, do do you have, you have quite a few people are just showing up because they, they're like, Hey, alcohol, drugs, they don't fit my life. I'm looking for like-minded community that is, is, uh, you know, heading in, in a, in a positive direction. And and I can see this being it. Are there a decent amount of people that are, that kind of fall in that category? Yeah, it's kind of funny. And I forget the exact ratio, but I think, um, somewhere on Samson's website said that like 10% of a given population can suffer from substance use disorder. Uh, and if you think of like our target market as being that 10% of people in recovery, that's kind of the genesis of where this organization started targeting that specific group of individuals. But as we started to expand, and I I noticed this, uh, in the work I was doing just as a volunteer coach here in Philadelphia is that we had people that were coming to our programs saying, I'm not a person in recovery, but I'm a spouse of somebody in recovery. I'm a sibling of somebody in recovery. My parents in recovery. Can I come attend your program? And that's where we really kind of shifted our mindset in terms of thinking like, hey, this isn't just something that would benefit the folks that are in recovery, but it's also those that are impacted by those individuals' substance use as well too, the family afterwards, or people who generally are just mission aligned with what we're doing and want to help support it. Uh, We see this a lot now. We do a lot of partnerships with, collegiate recovery organizations and there's a whole swath of college age kids that aren't interested in drugs or drinking. They're looking for activities that don't have to do with that. And they latch onto our program because they're just looking for healthy outlets and also the sober curious who are just kind of interested in this lifestyle. Uh, So it's really become, um, we talk about widening the door. It's really become this kind of like catch all for individuals who are looking for something a little bit more, not structured, but a little bit more um, proving out their own health efficacy. Yeah, I think it's taking control, right? We, and before we hit record, you and I were just kind of uh, of chatting. And I always point back to a lot of the work that that Dr. Uh, Anna Lemke is doing. Uh, she wrote the book, Dopamine Nation. And never in history have we been so inundated with these these high dopamine-producing activities and substances that are are interface either advertised promoted all the time right so i I think that there's there's a lot of people you know you talk about free will and whether we have it or not and i I think one of the challenges right now is even people that think they do uh might be mistaken just because there's so many there's so many different avenues that are that are, are are things that are being pushed down our throat whether that be the type of food that we're eating 
you know, genetically engineered to light up dopamine uh, in our brain through technology, through obviously through, through, through drugs and alcohol. And there's a lot of people, I, th- I think, you know, uh, just through necessity, people are starting to get, look at these things and going, hey, hey uh, I don't want to be slave to all of these things. And, and if I can build a connection to a shared purpose and challenge with, with people that are moving in a particular direction, uh, then, then why wouldn't I do that? So I think it's, I think it's a great opportunity to, uh, not a level playing field for, but people to have a little more empathy for, for other people that, that, um, may have found themselves trying something, uh, that, that is, you know, it's just hard to stop. You know, it's for people, this opioid thing is, uh, and it doesn't care. I mean, addiction is the most woke thing I can ever think of. It doesn't care what you look like. It doesn't care what your sexual preference is. Does it, it doesn't care. It's going to get its, its, uh, claws in and, um, but when did yeah, you, it's, I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, it's, it's kind of funny you bring that up in terms of, uh, it touching every different walk of life. And this might be getting too off on a tangent a little bit, but people always talk about how sectionalized or, um, how divisive the world is right now, especially just like on, uh, sociopolitical scales, things sure. like that. Like people are very much choosing up their sides and it is kind of funny for us as a nonprofit who we serve and what we're trying to do we're probably the most apolitical issue that exists out there right yeah. now. So really um, regardless of where people sit on kind of like the overall societal spectrum, this touches everybody. So everybody is impacted. Everybody could also benefit from this. Everybody stands to gain something from supporting this. 100%. You know, I can even go back to uh, what we, we might get into 12 stuff, 12 step stuff later, but uh, that even the process of, of looking at your own life, trying to figure out the reasons that you do the things you do, like connecting that your actions with your emotions and, and vice versa is something that could benefit anyone, right? There's, there's, there's a lot of positive things that come from that, but there's more to just that. Um, anyone who's been in sobriety and this isn't going to be all about just being in sobriety, but, but the early stages are, are, are tough, right? There's, um, that's a very pivotal and, and sensitive time for, for people going through it. And they always have you, it, well, not always, a lot of times they have you, have you fill some of your early time with doing something, right? I mean, they'll say things like coloring books or find something to do. And the fact that somebody hadn't come up with exercise before the Phoenix, and I'm sure there have been smaller things, but the fact that this hasn't been, um, uh, brought to the masses the way the Phoenix is doing, it's insane to me. I mean, it seems like such a such a uh, a perfect fit for for somebody who might be struggling. Well, it's funny. Um, you know, I've touched on something you brought up a couple minutes ago, Doctor Lemke. And full disclosure, I had zero credentials for being a doctor. Went to zero hours of medical school, but I listen to a ton of Anna Lemke on podcasts yeah. and a ton of Doctor Huberman on podcasts because I'm constantly interested in like the stuff that they yeah. put out there and. Uh, you're right. Like whatever facets of the brain leads someone to misuse substances or alcohol, take those substances away. That deficiency still exists and you see it start to manifest itself in a lot of different ways. And, uh, if you've been around people that are early on in recovery or people that have been very entrenched in their recovery, just because they're not drinking or they're not using anymore, they can start to find other ways to kind of latch on to that dopamine kick. Like, 
my story, I became a workaholic because I thought that that's how I was going to self-identify. And I got a lot of gratitude out of that. But it was also a very like empty silo I was constantly going back to or like nicotine, um, social media, uh, television, things like that. People can kind of go to the well for that to try and find that same source of dopamine. And that's just as uh, it's not as dangerous, but at the same time, it's not as fruitful. Um, so I, I got plugged in with a couple of guys when I was first going around the rooms and, uh, we started a Saturday afternoon pickup football game. And it was a mixture of guys that I knew from 12 step and also buddies of mine from high school that were like, you know, they were still drinking. Some of them were still getting high, but at the same time they would like not go out the night before so that they could be ready for the Saturday pickup football game. And it was crazy because it was the most enjoyable time of everybody's week. And of course, like we're all like towards the end of it, we're all getting like knee injuries and breaking fingers and stuff like that. But people um, got a a real sense of community amongst doing that activity together. And it was unencumbered with any other um, outside substances. Yeah. So I went to the same medical school you did. And got the same got the same amount of hours, uh, but but the idea of of everyone has a baseline of dopamine. Some is lower, some is higher. But but when we consistently subject ourselves to um, dopamine inducing activities or substances, and we take that away, uh, obviously that 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 balance is is leaning the wrong, the wrong way, right? It is pain and pleasure all come from the same place in our mind, right? So we take, uh, I'll, you know, I'm going to put a link to someone who's actually more qualified to, to, to who speak of this. It's a small, small video. I actually just watched it this morning. So yes, I I've seen, you know, they'll say, uh, addiction. It, it's, it's like water. It's going to find whatever crack, you know? So people definitely find, that's why a lot of people eat candy. Cause like, well, why, why is it? I, I want sweets. Well, sweets, it's not at the same level, but there's going to be a dopamine release and, and, and people will find it wherever they can. Um, this is obviously just going to be an opinion. Of, I'm going to ask your opinion. You were talking about sports. We talked about physical activity. Um, we talked about maybe uh, having to struggle to get to something. At the same, those things are at the same time are, are dopamine inducing activities, right? What... In your opinion, what is the difference between something that is uh, easy access to dopamine, right? So whether it's however that came from, through a bottle, through a needle, through smoking something, and the, um, the negative effects of that after that dopamine is worn off compared to the, 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 the longer feeling, the long-term effect of, of dopamine that comes from uh, adversity and some type of, of, of challenge? This is going to sound kind of crazy. Well, not crazy, but um, (laughs) I went to college for economics and there's this concept in economics of diminishing marginal returns. And it was explained to me in terms of like Snickers bars. Like if you have one Snickers bar, you're going to like really enjoy that Snickers bar. But if you have 12 Snickers bars, that 12th Snickers bar is not going to feel as good as the first one. And um, I I just listened to Dr. Huberman's podcast about alcohol effects on the, the... uh, body and he talks about how for most people that have a um, predisposition for alcohol use disorder 
that first drink it it's like a crazy amount of energy and excitement for that individual and that is what they're constantly chasing throughout the rest of the night so um if i think about drinking and how i used to drink the first drink was obviously the the biggest um gold star on the horizon that's yeah. what i wanted but like by the 12th one, I was still trying to chase that same excitement over and over again. I was getting less and less utility as I went. Um, go in the total opposite direction. If you think about something that is worthwhile to accomplish that actually has like long sustained, um, I guess, uh, dopamine response to it. One of the things that I found immensely useful for me very early on, and this actually has nothing to do with exercise or activity, but when I was feeling really down in early recovery, the easiest way for me to kind of change how my day was going was that I would wash my car. Really? Yeah. I would like park it on the curb outside my house in Philly and like, I'd get the hose out and a bucket of suds and, you know, 20, 30 minutes washing the car. And then by the end of it, it felt so Zen. There was this like sense of accomplishment. There was a very slow process behind it and it was a very simple thing. But, um, again, just regurgitating what other people, way smarter than I have said about dopamine, there's like this sense of reward, but there's also uh, a certain feeling of accomplishment attached to this as well too. Like I have done something better and there's a dopamine hook to that as well too. So like that simple action, uh, 10 times out of 10, made me feel better. Still does to this day. Uh, I wish we lived closer. The car's a mess. But they, <laughs> they, they, yeah, I, I agree. And again, this is just through my own experiences that, that, something that that maybe adds a little bit of discomfort that's hard you know and i don't want to say pain but there might be if it is exercise there might be pain involved healthy amount of it uh, that there's that that dopamine that comes from that uh, it's long longer lasting and it's working towards something positive right so I, I, i'm i'm gonna guess that's the reason for me uh that those things you know, the hard part is going, Hey, why don't we just do that from the very beginning? Why don't we always do this thing? Um, it's such a simple thing that we can do. Uh, what we should do and what we actually do are, are a lot of times two completely different things. And, and, uh, that's one of the hardest messages to kind of get across. Cause a lot of people say, well, if you're addicted to drugs, just stop. If you're addicted to alcohol, just stop. And, and I said before we started, one of the opportunities I think we see because there's so many uh, dopamine-inducing things in our uh, in our society now, that would be like, hey, uh, we'll just stop checking your phone. Let's see, let's see how long that goes and, and what that induces in, in your body. Yeah, I think um, regardless of what people's like substance of choice was, I think the, the worst part about the whole cycle is that when you're in serious pain from it, whether it's withdrawal, whether it's a hangover, whatever, the easiest way to take that pain away is to go right back to what caused it. Yeah. Like that's the, like, that's the quick fix. You think you're getting better. You think you're getting right. You're just digging yourself more in the hole. But in that moment, it's like, I just want that thing to make this all go away. Sure. And I remember the last day, the day before the last day of drinking, I told myself I was not going to drink and I drank against my will. And I was so upset and I was so distraught that it, like I, I made a conscious decision not to do something and I still did it anyway. And the only thing I could think to do to alleviate that pain was to just start drinking it. It's insanity. I, I mean, it really is. It really is crazy that, um, 
Now, the discomfort that goes along with with something that that really affects us this way and, and, and takes our control away, man. It literally you become a slave to to to, to things. Like I said, could be food, it could be work, it could be sex, it could be alcohol, drugs, but... Hey, we're going to take a quick break from the show to talk about my favorite company. That's Athletic Brewing Company. And I'll tell you what, this message is not for you. If you're listening to this right now, it's not for you. It's for the future version of you. It's that version of you where you decided to be kind to yourself, good to yourself. You gave yourself an amazing beer. Maybe you had two, three but you're kind because you made an athletic brewing company, the finest non-alcoholic beer company on the market. That's my opinion. They're also a huge supporter of us. And when I say that, uh, I mean, they got behind what we're doing. No one here at Consequence of Habit makes a dime off of athletic brewing company. Uh, they've invested in our cause, which is ironic because I've invested in these guys. I mean, well, not financially. God, I wish I had. Man, I missed the boat on that one, but I've just believed in what they're doing. I really, you know, they've got a company that's that's making amazing products, uh, and they stand behind their own ethics and and their values. They give back to the to the community, like they're, they've done with us here at Consequence of Habit. So, if you guys want to try amazing beer, but you want to you want to skip the alcohol for whatever reason, do yourself a favor. If it's your first order, use the promo code capital C-O-H-20 and get 20% off your first order. Uh, enough about that. Let's um, tell us about a little bit about, you don't have to go into too much detail, but uh, your story and, and then how your relationship with Phoenix was formed and, and you know just kind of that process. Yeah, sure thing. I, um, I grew up just outside of Philadelphia uh, in Glenside, if anybody knows that area. And I grew up in a really nice family, but I came from, uh, two families that had like two very distinct and different experiences with alcohol. Um, my mom's side of the family, uh, they had, you know, substance use disorder was pretty rife on that side of the family. And there's a number of individuals that like, uh, are also in recovery today. And it's a really good thing. But, um, you know, anybody that talks about it being a hereditary condition, like, you know, my family can be somewhat of a case study in that regard. Um, but, uh, you know, my dad's side of the family was different. Like it was like everybody was hard partying, hard working, and nobody seemed to have any kind of problems with it, but that was just kind of the way that they socialized with one of another. Um, so I had this like predisposition for it, but I also was around, um, an environment where it was always available and it was how people always related to one another. And that was the, that was the key guest at any family function. So, uh, and you know, drinking before we were 21 was not unheard of in our family either. So like, it was something where, uh, it was very accessible. It was very, uh, it was always around. And, uh, someone was asking me the other day about like what my first drink was and God's honest truth. I have no idea, but I, I know I was probably a kid. I was probably like younger than, 12, something like that. Probably was just curious, grabbed something off the table, took a sip. I, I, I don't know exactly like when it happened, but um, I can remember the first couple of times of uh, the effect that it, it um, that like warm feeling that you can feel through your veins. And uh, that, that feeling is basically what I chased for most of my teen years and early twenties. Um, I had, uh, 
I had a kind of a traumatic experience happen when I was about 16 years old. I was involved in a pretty serious car accident. I was the driver. Um, I nearly killed myself and three of my friends in the car. Uh, we were riding on some country roads and trying to catch air off the hills and uh, caught air off one hill and the car flipped over three times. And uh, it was it was pretty gnarly. Like one of the guys, two of the guys nearly lost their legs. One of the guys had to be um, medevac downtown uh, to get his leg well, to save his leg. Um, but uh, it happened right around the same time that things were kind of like deteriorating in my house mm-hmm. and um, my parents were growing apart. And I kind of thought that the car accident caused my parents to separate. And yeah. I, I internalized this feeling of causing my family to break up and I didn't really have anybody to talk to about that. Sure. And then, um, I have, you know, I've got this predisposition. I'm already like relying on alcohol as a way of feeling better. And then all of a sudden this dramatic thing happens that I feel like I caused. And then it, it completely changed my relationship with drinking and drinking became like the only way that I could access emotion. Um, the only way I could feel better when I wasn't drinking, I was basically just kind of a shell. I didn't really talk to anybody. Um, and, uh, that relationship with drinking started when I was about 16 and it really ramped up once I left home and, and went away to school. And by the time I was 20, I think I'd been arrested like four or five times in uh, college I was going to, they remanded me to go see a drug and alcohol counselor in order to stay on campus. And that was, it was at that point where it was suggested to me that I had an unhealthy relationship with alcohol. And I, in the back of my mind said like, I'm too young for this. Yeah. Like, I don't, I'm not an alcoholic. Like, I don't want to listen to this. And then, you know, sure enough, like within a year, I was starting to have some pretty serious, uh, health, um, health stuff going on as a result of my drinking. I, uh, I was pretty malnourished, like sitting here talking to you today. I weigh about like 200 pounds, but at the end of my drinking, I weighed about 160 pounds. So I was just like, I was really, uh, I was nauseous all the time. I couldn't really keep down food, so I wasn't eating a whole lot. Um, I, I was shaking a ton. My knees would buckle. Uh, my hands would shake. Um, I was uh, I was shooting liquid all the time. Like I couldn't control like those kind of bodily functions. I had blood in my stool, um, and uh, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't fall asleep at night. I couldn't access regular sleep. And then during the daytime, I was nodding off at my desk. So I was always like half awake during the daytime, half awake at night. Um, and then I, I, after I left school, I tried to get a job and I was a daily drinker. Uh, I smelled like booze every time I showed up and I was drinking every night. I, I lost my first job out of college. Um, and then, second job came around and I recognized that, all right, I got to get a handle on this drinking stuff if I'm going to be productive in society. And I became a, uh, a white knuckle drinker where I would grit my teeth and, and stop drinking Sunday nights and, and try and get through the span of a week. And then Friday would come around and it was all bets were off. And it's kind of funny, like the end of my drinking I tell people like the frequency with which I was drinking had gone down, but the behavior had gotten so uh, odd. Like 
I'd, I'd be waking up outside a lot. I'd wake up in people's front yards. I wake up on park benches, wake yeah. up behind the wheel of my car. I woke up on the side of the highway one time between Baltimore and DC. Wow. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I, I thought maybe like suicide was going to be the answer. Cause I really didn't have any other answers. I tried going to therapy, but when you go to therapy and you're still actively drinking, it's kind of like counterproductive. Right. And then I, one night, uh, I decided I was going to quit drinking for Lent. And I thought I'd give up drinking for 40 days and I made it two days. And I, I walked past this bar in my neighborhood that had really good cheese cheeseburgers. And I was going to go in and get a cheeseburger. Walked in, came out of a blackout the next day and was so distraught. I just picked up again and spent the whole day drinking, drove drunk from one end of the city to the other, parked my car on a curb, got kicked out of three bars. One bar I got kicked out of for biting somebody. Um, it's never good. No. And then that was, that was the last day. Um, I woke up and, uh, I was, I was all out of answers. I, I had no idea what to do, but I knew that my uncles had gone to 12 step years ago and it had been really useful for them. So I said, all right, like I'm all out of options, but this is one I haven't tried yet. So let's go see what the deal is. And, uh, I, um, that was, uh, February of 2008. Uh, probably about like a week after the Super Bowl, and um, I started going to twelve step meetings, and I was fully like I, I did not think I was going to stay. I did not want to be one of these people sitting in the church basement drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes. Um, but I didn't have any other place to go, and I just started going every day. And luckily enough. I got connected with a group of about four other guys, you know, relatively around my age, varying degrees of time in the program. Um, some had uh, years and some were counting days like me, but we all lived in the same neighborhood. And uh, the first, that summer of 2008, it was, it was great. Cause it was, <laughs> like the expectations of um, recovery early on, like all I really had to do was like go to work, pay my rent, go to meetings. And um, I, I hung out with these guys and we would walk around the neighborhoods. The Phillies were awesome back then. So we'd watch a ton of baseball and uh, we'd, you know, go to each other's houses and we'd cook dinner and just kind of like hang out and, and talk. And it was, uh, it was, there's a lot of different ways. And this is purely opinion not professional, but like there's a lot of different ways that people can um, find recovery or, or access recovery. But I think doing it solo has to be the hardest thing. Yeah, I think whatever way people do it, like being reliant on a community of healthy individuals that they can relate to is, is such a key. And I found that in 12 step, but like being able to um, have a pack or have a network of people that you rely on is, is um, so important, especially early on. You know, I think people have, uh, they surround themselves with, with people doing the same thing. So if you're drinking, I'm going to guess you hung out with drinkers, right? That's just the kind of inherently the thing we do because it, it reflects of where, where we are in our own life and our own activities. So, uh, to, to take that identity and the, and that group of friends that you're around all the time, 
separate yourself from them, which is a necessity, but then to feel like you're an island, the only person doing this, uh, I could definitely see where that would be. That's a, that's a heavy lift. That's, that's a hard thing to do. So, you know, why not surround yourself with, again, going back into kind of what the Phoenix is, but like-minded people moving in a, in the same direction. Yeah. I, uh, it's funny, like it was very early on in recovery that I get, I got plugged in with a group like this, but it was a lot of the reason that I ended up finding Phoenix later on. Um, because I didn't, I think I came to Phoenix when I was like eight years into recovery and early on in recovery, like I tried a lot of other ways to feel better, like pouring myself into my job and making that be the focal point of everything that makes me happy. Um, I left Philadelphia for a number of years and I lived in Chicago. And while I was in Chicago, I was basically like, it was me and my Xbox and I never really left my apartment. Um, or, uh, you know, just being over caffeinated constantly or the ramp up of social media and working on that constantly for validation. Um, I still had problems sleeping for a number of years because I didn't find healthy ways of finding value in myself. Mm. And then, uh, my brother actually, <laughs> I, I think I was turning 30. My brother told me about this fitness routine called CrossFit in my neighborhood. And I was like, group fitness classes sounds super dumb. I'm not interested. Yeah. And, uh, I, I begrudgingly started going and, uh, yeah, I, I, I totally drank the Kool-Aid right from day one. Um, you know, I got into it and, uh, I remember one, you know, after a couple of years of going, this guy at my gym is like, Hey, I just got certified to teach this stuff. Uh, I was like, well, if this bonehead could do it, I could do it. So <laughs> right, I, right. I, I got my L1 certificate and I started coaching. And uh, I really liked that um, without having any connections to recovery, the recovery movement, I was playing an active role in other people's health and wellness. And uh, that was a really big thing in terms of like, feeling like I was doing something for myself, but I was also doing something that was benefiting other sure. people. And, um, I had always heard about the Phoenix because at that time, um, they were still very much entrenched in Colorado and Massachusetts, but I had moved back to Philadelphia and I was coaching at a gym in Philadelphia. And I heard that Phoenix was launching a chapter at a gym in South Philly and they were looking for volunteer coaches. So I said, all right, here's an opportunity to take something that I've been doing just for kicks anyway, and now do it for the recovery community. And I raised my hand and started volunteer coaching there on Saturdays. And then, um, through doing that, I, uh, I, I got a chance to meet a lot of the folks that were working at Phoenix that founded the organization. And we'd always had conversations about me coming to work for them professionally. And then, about two years ago, two and a half years ago, they came to me with an opportunity to come and help out run their national partnership strategy. And I said, yes, let's do it. And that's, that's how I landed here. Um, so it's been kind of a wild arc to, to marry something that I love to do with, uh, a profession. Yeah. You know, I go back to a lot of stoic quotes and, and, and Ryan Holiday's book, uh, "The Obstacles, The Way," is is this title that's been this reoccurring kind of theme in in a lot of the guests on the podcast. That this thing that was the largest obstacle in their life over time, as they face this, has evolved into the biggest opportunities in their life. And it's just a crazy world, man. You you start doing the CrossFit thing, and and uh, and this opportunity comes up, and it, it's marrying these two massive things in your life. 
I'm not, I'm trying not to speak for you, but I would imagine, you know, you're, you're deep people, you know, rarely, I don't know if that's accurate, but kind of dabble in CrossFit, especially, you know, when, when they, they're in, they're in. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to take this, to come from this, this, this world of, of substance misuse or alcohol misuse and, and yeah, that had to be, you know, we talk about service work and that, that had to be an amazing feeling to be able to offer this thing to the same community, uh, that you had been, you know, a card carrying member of, uh, for a long time. So, and what year was this? This is when? Uh, I started volunteering for the Phoenix in 2016, okay. 2017, something like that. Um, and then came to work for them just after the pandemic started in 2020. You know, we, we said earlier that the early recovery can, can be a really uh, pivotal time in somebody's, you know, in somebody's journey. And I, and I imagine there, you know, that's gotta be, that's gotta offer or, or there can be a real challenge for you guys as well as kind of having people come in, in this, uh, this such a vulnerable state. I don't even know what my question is. I would say, really, I guess, how do you guys kind of handle that and, and, is, you know, how are you, how do you, how did you equip yourselves to deal with people? Cause this isn't just the first time somebody's starting a, a, you know, going rock climbing or starting a CrossFit class or any of that. There's, there's this whole other level to this. So there's, um, there's two aspects of things that are worth touching on. One, our, uh, our deputy executive director, Jackie Helios is someone who comes from a clinical background and a lot of her professional background helped inform the training that we have our volunteers and instructors go through. So, um, having someone who's accredited in a certain yoga practice or, um, to teach, uh, plyometrics, things like that, that's one piece to have somebody activated as an instructor. Yeah. It's another to teach people. Um, what we kind of call our trauma-informed lens for dealing with this population. Uh, a lot of the people that come to our programming come with histories of sexual trauma. And for those types of situations, we don't want our instructors to have any kind of like tactile cueing for our population at all. So, you know, if they're squatting, they're squatting to like a box or a med ball or something like that. Or, you know, they're using PVC to kind of cue individuals. Um, there's also other nuances to our programming where, you know, like, I know there's a ton of people out there that, you know, when it gets hot out during the summer, they want to, like, take their shirts off when they're working out. But we ask individuals to all keep their shirts on. And for that exact same reason, we try to maintain this idea of a, a safe and supportive space. And we don't want it to be a, a barrier for anybody to come and participate. Um, and at the same time, the movement patterns and the concepts and uh, the programming are similar, but, like, someone who's been doing this for two years and then someone who is detoxing from heroin and is counting days, they're probably going to be doing different loads and we don't want anybody to feel othered or that they're doing anything less or having a different experience. We want to maintain this idea of like everybody is doing this together as a group. Um, so that's one piece of it. Um, as it pertains to COVID, Uh, And this kind of gives me an opportunity to talk about one other thing we've done from a growth perspective. Uh, We came up with this idea at the start of 2020, maybe individuals would want to come to programming over Zoom. And it was a way for us to start to look at other parts of the country where we didn't have any programming going. And 
you know, we stood up a couple virtual classes to test. And then all of a sudden, March of 2020 came around. COVID broke out and all of our in-person programming went away like that. So that it's at that point, we leaned really hard into this virtual concept and stood up a full slate of virtual programs within 48 hours. And it was so successful and the uptake of it was so strong that we're at the point now where almost half of the individuals that attend our program do, do so through virtual programs. Wow. Um, so that's like 60 classes a week over Zoom, yoga, meditation, bodyweight fitness, things like that. And we also produce on-demand content that uh, we partnered with a technology provider to run Phoenix Programming in about 150 jails and prisons across the United States. So individuals can participate in Phoenix programming, even if they're confined to whatever institution that they're in. That's awesome. Honestly, man, that's, that's, I I've seen the app. I've been on the app. I signed up for it. Uh, I had no idea that there was that much outreach within that community. Uh, to, I mean, to everyone, right. Like we talked about before, like this is, it doesn't care where, um, where you're from, what your economic status is, there's, there's people suffering everywhere. And a lot of people within yeah. the, the prison community are, are certainly been, um, had their own experiences around substance misuse issues. And if somebody wants some more information about, uh, Phoenix and, and how to get involved, whether you're either in recovery, you're somebody who's just sober, maybe you're a family member, somebody in recovery, how do they go about it? Sure. So easiest way, go to our website. It's the Phoenix dot work. Uh, you can take a look at all of our programming, either that's in your area or our virtual programming that you can use from a web browser, or you can download our smartphone app. Uh, it's available on Google and Apple. Uh, take a look at the app. You can find again, programming in your area, connect up with other folks that are part of the Phoenix community. And if you're interested in becoming a volunteer, volunteer activation can be done right from your phone. Um, Training takes about two hours, soup to nuts, but individuals can do it at their own pace. So if you say like, hey, there's no in-person programming in my area, and I really love softball. I'd love to stand up a sober active softball game regularly on Tuesday nights. We can help you do that. So um, anytime I talk about this, there's always a big call to action for those that want to participate. Please come and join us. But those that also want to create and those that want to lead, we can help you get that done. That's, I think that's huge, right? Because a lot of people, uh, if they just see somebody doing CrossFit, uh, not to say that they couldn't do it, but maybe just that's not their job, man. They want to do something else. Uh, you know, any of these opportunities, just like you said with the football too, getting this group of people together, um, that, that, that builds bonds that, that are, are hard to describe in words, especially from somebody who's been suffering for a long time. Uh, Gavin, is there anything else, man, you want to cover on here about to, about your experiences, about the Phoenix, about addiction? Um, anything you want to run by? No, I, I think um, I just want to say thanks again for this opportunity. You know, like there's a lot of people out there that know who we are and what we do, but there's still like any chance to get this message out to people, giving me the opportunity to come on and talk on your platform about it. Um, I can't thank you enough. So. Yeah. And I realized like your conversation started just two weeks ago and now we're already here. So, uh, I'm really uh, appreciative of this opportunity. Oh, likewise. 
And, and there isn't anything concrete yet, but but just for everybody to listen, know that we're in talks about uh, potentially doing something together, uh, definitely getting something something in the works because there's a lot of synergy in our missions and uh, there's no reason not to, right? These are the same communities we're trying to help. So I appreciate you. I appreciate your time and I look forward to some future conversations with you. Likewise, JT. Appreciate it, my man. Awesome. Everybody, that's a wrap. Like always, thanks again for checking this out. This show is brought to you by the team here at Consequence of Habit and is an arm of our 501c3 nonprofit. The show is produced and edited by the one and only Anthony Palmer and is part of the Palm Tree Pod Company network of podcasts. That's it. I'll catch you guys next week.